As we just heard in Laura's report, President Biden is calling MAGA Republicans a direct threat to democracy. Court filings reveal more details about the Justice Department's investigation into former President Trump's handling of top-secret documents. And an upset in Alaska shakes up midterm forecasts. It is all fodder for the analysis of Brooks and Capehart. That's New York Times columnist David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for The Washington Post. It's good to have you both back together again in person in the studio. Welcome. The band is back together. Uh, back together. Welcome to both of you. Um, let's just pick up, Jonathan, where we left off with Laura's report. The president's speech last night, he says this is an inflection point. He went hard mm -hmm. after the what he calls MAGA Republicans. What did you make of it? Yes, this is an inflection point. I do agree with your characterization that he did go hard at, at the Republicans. But, but the theme of his speech and what he was saying is something he's been saying since he launched his campaign for president in 2019. That campaign video uh, where he spoke to the nation about Charlottesville and then President Trump's reaction to Charlottesville and how the soul of the nation was at stake. And that's why he was running for president. He came back to those themes again uh, on January 6th of this year when uh, um, to mark the one year anniversary of the <clears throat> excuse me of the of the insurrection. We've seen it in other speeches here and there, for instance, in Atlanta, when he gave that voting rights speech talking about the fundamental need to protect the right to vote. What made yes, last night's speech different was the toughness and the directness in uh, of his language making drawing a clear contrast between what he's doing as president and and the maga wing of the republican party and the last point i'll make is joe biden is never more animated clear focused and determined than when he's talking about the fight for the soul of the nation what did you make of it there's a lot there's a lot of criticism as we heard from yeah, I have a little of it, actually. You know, I, I think he's right that this is a special time in American history. This is not normal. The threat to democracy is real. And the president, as Michael Beschlau said, should be speaking about the real threats to the country. So I have no problem with him giving this speech. I, when I read the text, I was a little disappointed. One, he should have mentioned that his own party has spent $44 million supporting the MAGA wing in the Republican Party in Republican primaries. Uh, and he should have called out his own party for doing that if it's such a threat. Two, 30% uh, of Trump voters in 2020 have shown some openness to not voting for Donald Trump again. Th those are the key people in this country. They need to peel away. And I thought it was a little too much of a Democrat-Republican speech and would have the effect of putting those 30% back in the Trump camp, which I think is dangerous. And then finally, when he talked about the soul of the country in 2020, I thought it was a beautiful phrase because it captured not just what's happening in our politics, it captured Charlottesville, it captured the record hate crimes, it captured the deaths of despair, the declining life expectancy in this country, it captured the social, relational, and I would say spiritual crisis, which is at the heart of a lot of our problems. And MAGA is an epiphenomenon of that. It comes out of that crisis. And so to reduce it only to the politics, I think robs that phrase, the soul of America, of its key power which is to capture the depth of the problem we face, which is not just politics, but deep down in our relationships and, and the social fabric of the country. What about David's point? I mean, I, I, I take your points. Um, I do think the president should have, when he was talking about the accomplishments and the things that he's doing to 
push the nation forward, but also to, to bring the nation together, he should have talked about how a lot of the legislation that was passed was passed with Republicans. It was, some of them were bipartisan, bipartisan deals. Um, but that being said, we are at a point in this country, and the president talked about this, and this might be viewed as partisan. We were talking about a woman's right to choose or being able to marry, marry who you love. For some people, you can have disagreements on that. But those rights are being, are, have either been taken away or are under threat. And there are people who are Republicans who are, you know, either LGBTQ or, um, you know, are women who want to seek, might have to seek reproductive health care and can't because they live in states where it is now outlawed. So I do think, I just quibble with you a little bit, David, that I do think he didn't say it in the way that you wanted him to say it, but I do think he touched on, he touched on some of those issues. And yeah, I don't, I don't fault him for having a Democratic campaign rally. <laughs> if he wants to go ahead and have a Democratic <laughs> campaign rally and defend uh, abortion rights and all the other stuff, God bless you. But this, I think, was an occasion, a primetime presidential address to not have a campaign rally and to say democracy is something we all believe in and it's under extraordinary threat but from a small or I don't know how small minority of Americans and this is something we can all rally around and I, so I would have preferred a tone that was less partisan less that drifted it started out sort of nonpartisan then drifted into campaign rally in my view that's a little a, a little harsh David but that gives me an opportunity to talk about a speech that came that happened about 90 minutes before the president spoke uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy gave his own speech in, in Pennsylvania, which I immediately dubbed American Carnage 2.0. It was dark. It was dystopian. Everything was Biden's fault. Everything was the Democrats' fault. And if, you, and if you don't put Republicans in charge, all hell is going to break loose. It was, it, it was an exercise in projection. A lot of the things he was, say, he was saying in that speech as a pre-buttal to what the president was going to say are things that um, we've been talking about around this table for, for months now. And so I think we have to also, when talking about the president's speech, we have to pay attention to what the Republicans are saying on the other side. And Kevin McCarthy, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, fully expects to be the next Speaker of the House. And if you haven't read the speech or watched the speech, do so, and then get back to me about your concerns about what the president said. You know. <laughs> it's, it's not a race. <laughs> you don't want to talk about that in the same in the same in the same sense, David. Uh, the other thing I, do, I certainly want to raise is the Justice Department putting out these filings uh, as much as they can show of what they found when they went to Mar-a-Lago, and um, it was it was clearly there's clearly some classified material. You're looking at the picture that was released. Um, you're you're looking at documents, and then today we learned that there were. Empty folders, labeled, classified. Um, what do you What do you take away from this? I object to the carpeting. Uh, but uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the empty folders is is I think new. I think as each memo or indictment or whatever comes down, um, it gets worse and worse for Donald Trump. Uh, and so we learn new things. And so those empty folders, did he take out, did we really believe he took out empty folders that said classified with no documents inside? That seems kind of hard to believe for me. And so where are those documents? Right. Uh, and so, and then how much effect has this had on our sources around the world? And how much damage has he done? And so there's just an escalating peril 
uh, for Donald Trump, the more we learn. And just, you know, taking classified documents, and apparently they were mixed in with boxes of newspaper clippings. Um, it just seems like not only sloppiness, but sloppiness to a lethal degree. Is this, is this likely to be, I mean, how damaging is this? For, for former president. We've, we've seen a lot. <laughs> so add this in. How damaging is it? it, it well it should be damaging. It should be very damaging. But we're talking about Donald Trump, um, who takes every damaging piece of information and uses it that would that damages him in the court of law and then takes it to the court of public opinion where it inures to his benefit, at least in the short term, which we know when it comes to Donald Trump, he's all about the short term, not about the long term. But to add on to what David was talking about, just in terms of how bad this is getting, one of the pieces of information among many in that filing that leapt out at me was the fact that you have federal investigators, FBI investigators, DOJ investigators, who are part of this investigation, who had to get additional security clearances in order to look at the paper, some of the papers, to review some of the papers they took from Mar-a-Lago. What, I, I mean, what did he have? And to Davis, how damaging is it to, not only to the country, but to our national security? He should be in trouble. And of course, among his explanations is that he had already personally declassified uh, some of these, some of these documents. We're waiting to see. We're waiting to see. <laughs> There's actually a process for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, David, the other thing is, is midterm elections. We got a little more uh, interesting uh, uh, data this week in Alaska. Of all places, this state's been represented by a Republican in Congress for 50 years almost, elect, uh, choosing a Democrat. Now, it's a special election. Her name is Mary Peltola. She beat out Sarah Palin and another Republican. This and some other reassessments, realignments by the folks who look really closely at these elections um, in the Democrats' favor, what do you, what do you take a look Well, first, in Alaska, the, the, that race was conducted by ranked choice voting, which I am a fan of. And the idea behind ranked choice voting is that it makes the parties and the ideological extremes less powerful and gives people a chance to cross over. And that's exactly what happened. The Republican who lost under Sarah Palin, this guy Nick Begich, a lot of his voters, I think it's like 30%, said, I don't want Palin as my second choice. I want Piltola as my second choice. And that's why she won. And so that's what ranked choice voting was designed to do. And it, it's done it. So it's, to me, it's a victory for ranked choice voting. It gives you a lane for people in the middle. As for the larger um, climate, it's been pretty clear for a month or two now. You know, the, the, we've had two special elections in New York and here. Democrats have won them both. Uh, they're outperforming. In this race, Alaska is like 15 points more Republican than the median American. And she won by three. So that's a, she went plus 18 over where Alaska should be. Uh, and so that's a pretty big sweep. It's not to say it can't sweep back, but abortion is a real issue. Uh, Democrats are mov moving out. People are happier with Biden than they were. There's clearly been this summer tide on the Democratic side. She stressed in her interview with me yesterday, Jonathan, that the Alaska voters don't like partisanship, that they, they're looking for politicians who talk about the issues. And, and clearly that is the case because she won. Um, and I think we're going to find out in November whether that is the case across the country. There, there are a couple of hurdles in the way of, Demo uh, of Democrats sort of repeating nationwide um, what Ms. Poltola did in Alaska. I mean, there's gerrymandering, uh, which is going to make it really super tough. But then there's also history. And it's going to take a lot for the, the miracle in Alaska and the miracle in New York Congressional District 19 to 
make it possible for Democrats to hold on to the House. But I, I guarantee you, if you were to talk to a, a Democratic operative today, they like their prospects much better now than they did, say, in March. And feeling better about the Senate, still thinking that the House is a real reach, maybe right. out of reach, um, but, but the Senate, you're hearing more optimism. Yeah, the, those who know what they're talking about, Charlie <laughs> Cook and our friend Amy Walter, uh, have moved it from less of a 30 House seat gain for the Republicans more to like 10. So they, right. that would still be taking back. But And then in the Senate side, if the Republicans are having this bitter feud between Mitch McConnell and Senator Rick Scott over how good their candidates are. <laughs> <laughs> and that, you don't want to be that party. Right. Wait a minute. The two of you know what you're talking about, right? I mean, that's why we have you here. <laughs> David Brooks, Jonathan Capehart, thank you both. Thanks, Judy.